0: Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell in High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan, and the producer of our dope theme music. So Thanksgiving is now in the rearview mirror, and I hope that you, like me, were able to do two important things over the holiday. One, avoid getting COVID from your fucked up Red State relatives, and B got to spend the holiday kind of blissed out on tryptophan and mold wine and some of that high-end indica you know the grape ape or the nine pound hammer or the kosher kush you know whatever you like but now if you're like me also you have come to and realized that you are staring down the barrel of the holidays and you know it's a time of both anxiety and anticipation you gotta give a bunch of gifts. You're gonna get a bunch of gifts. And again, if you're like me, you want to do well on both. You want to get some good stuff, and you want to give some good stuff, right? And you know, Helen High Water is not a place that does a lot of product recommendations. Although we do always champion and celebrate authors and other artists and the pieces of work that they do that we love. And today we're going to be doing both, talking about a book that, for all of you political junkies and history junkies out there in Helen High Waterland will make a perfect, I'm talking about a perfect, not just a good, not just a great, but a perfect holiday gift for someone you love, someone you like, or even for yourself. If you happen to be one of those people who doesn't get enough gifts, you can just go buy this for yourself and say, Merry Christmas to myself. The book is called First Friends, the powerful, unsung, and unelected people who shaped our presidents. And its author is here with us today, an old friend and fantastic guy who you probably have never heard of well, you're going to love listening to, that would be
1: Gary Ginsburg. The State of the Union is right now in chaos. I mean, let's face it, inflation is rampant. Our parties are dysfunctional, but we are a great country and we will
0: survive. Gary Ginsburg is, as I suggested, not a well-known author. In fact, First Friend is his first book, which makes it all the more astonishing in that his first time out Gary has found a story to tell that's both really important, really interesting, and has never really been told before. It's the story of the men and women down through history who are not just unelected, but also unappointed. not talking about White House chiefs of staff or cabinet secretaries or other powerful staffers. We're talking about people who, by virtue of their personal connections with presidents from Thomas Jefferson to James Madison to FDR to Harry Truman to Richard Nixon to Bill Clinton, have had a profound role in influencing both the presidents and the presidencies of those men. Gary Ginsburg is, in a way, the perfect person to tell this story. Although he's never been a first friend to a president, he has been a senior advisor, a counselor, a consigliere, a close, close friend to a lot of extremely powerful and prominent people in both politics and media over the past three decades. You could say some of the most powerful and prominent people in politics and media over the past three decades an extremely ideologically diverse and eclectic and divergent range of individuals in terms of their views and their beliefs and their politics. I mean, this is quite a list, right? Gary Ginsburg has worked for Bill Clinton, John F. Kennedy Jr., Rupert Murdoch, former Time Warner CEO Jeff Bukas, and one of the richest men on the planet, Mike Bloomberg. So yeah, Gary has, has managed to be in the room where it happens with all of those men And whether you consider that to be a Mount Rushmore of American leadership or a rogues gallery of plutocrats and poobahs, it is, to be sure, a really, really fascinating resume and a colorful one. And it gives Gary a rich trove of tales to tell and tea to spill, a surprising amount of which he does right here on this podcast. So my advice to you is to put up your feet, make yourself a turkey sandwich, pour yourself a cold one and or load up another bowl of that kind bud, and treat yourself to the pleasures of Gary Ginsburg, a guy who, through careful historical research and more present-day personal experience, knows exactly what it's like to be in one of those rooms where it happens and how presidents and corporate potentates alike rely on unseen and unknown but extremely important primo pals to help them navigate the rapids they inevitably confront when they're hit with their share of hell and high water.
1: I know a lot of very successful people, very, very successful. And now they call me up. Mr. President, sir, uh, w- would you like to get together sometime? I say, loosen up. <laughs> yes, call me Donald. You don't, you've you known me for 30 years. Call me Donald. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. President. I appreciate it. <laughs> no, I lost all my friends because it's respect for the office. Let's face it, it's different. So I have to rely on people in Congress to be my friends.
0: I don't really like ever, except it when absolutely necessary, playing Donald Trump sound on this program. But because that sound, my friend Gary Ginsburg, welcome to, to Hell Helen High Water. Thank you. Because that sound illustrates a central theme of your powerhouse blockbuster best-selling book, a book that, although it came out a while ago, I couldn't recommend it more for the holidays ahead. Thank you, John. It's a splendid Hanukkah gift a Christmas gift. Any holiday you celebrate, this book is perfect. The book is called First Friends, the powerful, unsung, and unelected people who have shaped our presidents. And so like that's there's Donald Trump complaining about the fact that I'm president now and I don't have any friends. Well, no, he actually said, I lost all my friends. Right, right. Even worse. Which I think
1: is a gross exaggeration because I'm not clear that he had any friends or has any friends.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. You and I talked about this book as you were getting ready to write it and then writing it. And then I've heard you talk about it in the media sense, like this Trump friendlessness thing, which we'll come back to later on. But it's sort of like it was one of the things that got you interested in writing the book, right? It was. Yeah. I mean, I,
1: I came up with this idea in 2018 and an impetus for writing it was the recognition that Donald Trump did not have anybody around him who could provide that kind of blunt truth or that respite that I think every president needs. And in 2018, you know, he was already floundering. And if Rudy Giuliani was his best friend, as many in the media
0: speculated, then God help the country, God help Donald Trump. (laughs) I think you're right. Trump is so transactional that like the way you and I and other humans understand friendship is just not really a thing that calculates for him. I mean, Trump was meaner to Rudy in private than... Anybody would ever be to their worst enemy. Yeah, exactly. He just mocked him constantly and was brutal with him all the time. And yet here he was, like maybe his best friend. You're like, seriously, if that's your best friend. Yeah. You know, I think it's not even, even got to help him so much as it is like you don't really understand the nature of what a friend is. Well, I don't think Donald Trump was capable of having a friend because think
1: about it in your life or your listeners lives. To be a friend, you have to give something of yourself. You have to show compassion. You have to show empathy. You have to show curiosity. You have to care about the other person and extend yourself. And Donald Trump, being the ultimate narcissist, I don't think was capable of actually giving of himself to actually enable a genuine friendship.
0: Yeah, I think that all that sounds right. And again, I want to come back a little later to the consequences of that because you just raised two things, which we'll talk about now in some detail. You know, what is this role of first friend as you define it? In some sense, it's like what we all think of as a friend and you used two things there. You said blunt truth and respite. I mean, I want you to say more about both those things, but it's also different, right? Because being the first friend to a president of the United States is a different quality of friendship than the friendship you and I have, for instance, or the friendship that we have with our best friends.
1: Right, but you remember that in eight of my nine stories the friendship begins long before one of the friends becomes president right so it really is no different in terms of what brought these two people together than what brought you together with your friends john or what brought me together with my friends you know it's shared interests it's shared values it's being able to relax with that friend but also have that friend tell you when you need to hear that hard truth and so when i was looking for friendships i was looking ideally for a friendship that incorporated both of those aspects, that respite and that hard truth that I think our friends can often provide to us that others won't.
0: But Trump is actually making a good point. (laughs) And I just I can't believe those words just came out of my mouth. I just like (laughs) wash your mouth. That was so motherfucker. I mean, there is something, though, that like you and I have seen this before, which is a lot of presidents, their friendships change. They have long friendships, but then they become president and their friends who once told them blunt truths are like a little bit more reluctant to tell them the blunt truth now that they're the most powerful man on the planet. And then they have to call them Mr. President, or they feel like they have to call them Mr. President of the Oval Office. It changes things, right? When you become president, even for people who've been friends for 20 years, they're like a little freaked out that their friend is sitting behind that fucking desk. Well, I'm not
1: sure that's true. I I mean, the, the kind of the conceit of the book was that the friendship doesn't change because the friendship is so deep and so durable. Right. And that you've created a certain... Dynamic with your best friend over decades, right? And so the idea of the book is that the friendship doesn't materially or characteristically change once the president is in office. And you know one of the examples I use is Eddie Jacobson just barging into the Oval Office and just speaking to Harry Truman just like he spoke to him in the haberdashery in Kansas City in 1920. or David Ormsby Gore, you know who started arguing with Kennedy about the nature of leadership. In London in 1938, having that same kind of conversation, that same kind of open, candid, frank conversation in the White House as Soviet missiles are being put into Cuba. So the idea is that these friendships form an early life yeah. and then carry you
0: through no matter how high one friend or both friends end up ascending. The, you and I actually, I don't think, are saying different things. I think here's what I, where I think we'll find common ground on this. This is a very distinct category for you, right? First friend is like the best friend of the president. Yes. And the friends that I was referring to a second ago is a lot of the other ones. Sure, the peripheral. But again, even some pretty good friends where it changes and you're kind of signaling out the one, that's what makes this special. Yeah. What makes this special is that this is the one that they have that doesn't change. Right. This is the one that that endures in all of its qualities. While many of the other friendships change, this one is the one that's like, Oh we're still the same relationship yeah. that we always had.
1: Because if it does change John then it kind of undermines the concept of why a first friend is so important and why I thought it was an interesting new lens onto the presidency. Right. Because if it changes and you can't speak that blunt truth if you're in awe of the man suddenly and the office he occupies then you know the, just the nature of the friendship will change. Right. You won't have that ease that you need, that comfort level that you need to be able to provide
0: the respite and the blunt truth that I talk about. So here's the question I wanted to ask you about your time, you know, relatively, as a relatively young man has gone to law school, been a lawyer for a little bit, but you end up in the Clinton White House in the first term. And you have an experience in the context of the vetting process, actually prior to Clinton becoming president, well, on the Clinton campaign in 92. Right. You have this experience where this kind of concept of the importance of friendship at the highest level gets introduced to you. I want you to tell that story because I think it's illuminating. And I know it also was another one of the formative things that made you first start thinking about this whole thing.
1: Yeah, it was. So in April of 1992, Bill Clinton had just won the New York primary, and it was pretty obvious he was going to become the nominee. And Like any smart campaign, the brass started thinking about who should be our vice presidential nominee. So they asked five lawyers to go to Washington, sit behind an unmarked door at a Washington law firm and vet vice presidential candidates. I had worked for Al Gore in 1988 as kind of a mid-level staffer. I did issues and then I went on the road with him. So I knew him pretty well. And I asked to have him as one of the 50 names that we were given in that second week of April, I think it was. And we had three months to do it. So obviously, you know, the Clinton campaign wanted to do it right. They didn't want to make a mistake. Yep. So we start vetting. The list of 50 narrows to five. I've still got Gore. I'm kind of carrying him through all the various stages of elimination. And I go to Tennessee. I vet him with everybody I can get my hands on. I produce a dossier, a little bit more accurate than the steel dossier. And with a lot less urine. And a lot less urine, yes. Yeah. There are no, yes. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and so the decision is made that Al is going to be one of the five interviews that Clinton is going to do to choose one. But smartly, they decided that rather than a 29 year old former staffer to do that final interview, they needed somebody with a little bit more gravitas. So they brought in Harry McPherson, who was Lyndon Johnson's speechwriter and counsel, you know, in his 70s, didn't need or want anything from the process. So Harry calls me up and says, Hey, come on down to my office and let's go over what you've learned about Gore before we go interview him. So I go down to his law office and uh, I have all these notebooks. And I, Array them on his desk, and we we start talking and The first question he asks me is, "Does Al Gore have any friends because i don 't frankly care about his views on the m x missile siloing i don 't really care right now about his views on greenhouse gases. I want to know does he have good friends because it's not clear to me that he does, and I worked in the Lyndon Johnson administration. I was there when he was deliberating the difficult decisions surrounding the Vietnam war and If he doesn't, I would be concerned. So, you know, it's funny. I immediately started thinking about the contrast between the Gore campaign and the Clinton campaign. You know, I'd been the advance director at the start of the Clinton campaign. And what really grabbed me was the role of his friends in not only galvanizing him, but frankly keeping him alive during the New Hampshire primary. you know, He had 600 friends sign a letter attesting to his character after the Jennifer Flowers press conference. And he had 100 friends go up to New Hampshire to knock on doors and basically speak to voters about his essential character. And when I talked to Clinton for the book, he said, I'm probably the only president in history who can say his best friends elected him president. So contrast that then with my experience in 1988, where... Gore did not have that gaggle of friends going from state to state with him. He didn't have a lot of friends that he was calling in his downtime to kind of get a sense of how's he doing or to give him that respite off the trail. And so I answered the question to Harry by saying he's got two really good friends in Congress and his brother-in-law, and that's pretty much it. And he said, well, if that's the case, I'm going to probe this because this is really troubling to me. So we go to the interview, we sit down and his first question to Gore is, Senator, who are your friends? And Gore was like, what? What are you asking, Harry? And he says, Senator, it's a simple question. Who are your friends? Just as I had predicted, he said, Norm Dix from Washington State, Tom Downey. Downey from New York. He said, anybody else? He said, yeah, my brother-in-law, Frank Hunger. He said, anybody else? Anybody from, anybody from Harvard? Anybody from Carthage? Anybody from Nashville? Anybody from the army? Anybody from you know just your life in Washington? And he said, hmm, no, Dix, Downey, Frank. So the rest of the interview, obviously, he nails everything. Clearly, he you know, has the qualifications, the character to be vice president. But we get back in the car to drive down to his office, and it just was bugging Harry. He said, if the man can't claim one best friend, and I think he was describing best friends as somebody outside of yeah. Congress or his family, his immediate family, <laughs> then how is he going to lead a nation? That's what he said to yeah. me in the car. And I think he relayed that concern to Christopher. I asked Clinton later, was it a concern to you? And he said no. You know, I had enough friends
0: for the two of us. That's the key, right? It's hard for people now to remember we're both ancients, right? You know, I've never seen anybody like Clinton. I mean, politicians generally, Gore is such an outlier, right, as someone who really is a solitary figure. And I think Carius wasn't wrong. I think there's something in that about why Al Gore didn't become president of the United States. Yeah, yeah. You know, his level of human connection was always lacking. But you think about most of the politicians we know who've been successful from Bill Clinton to... To, I mean, even Obama had a bigger circle of friends than that, although he was relatively solitary. You know, George W. Bush, Trump, you know, not friends, but like just knew a lot of yes. people that worked the phones. You know, Absolutely. like they were all constantly reaching out to people, right. getting input, getting advice, telling stories, reading the wind and weather, you know. I mean, Bill Clinton had a, people back in the day refer to themselves as FOBs. Yeah, exactly. Right? Friends of Bill. Right. That was a designation that people understood because there were like 6,000 of yeah, them. Yeah, were like a, right. <laughs> well, well, I mean, look, at if you read his memoir my life, it opens with him listing
1: the five goals he had in life when he left law school. And goal number three was to have good
0: friends. Yeah. So this was a lifelong pursuit of his. He was the ultimate networker. But even again, to come back to the distinction, and I want to talk about some of the examples in the book. But let's start with Bill Clinton. Even for Bill Clinton, who had a thousand friends and had the whole Renaissance Weekend. Again, something people lost to this, to memory for most people back in the day when Renaissance Weekend at a Hilton Head meant something. Like if you were there, you were in the right. Clinton circle, right? That was a thing, boy, for eight years. Even he... There was really one person who was really, really his first friend. And you write about him in the book, a guy who passed away not that long ago. And Bill Clinton spoke at his funeral, widely broadcast, a very powerful person in the history of American life and certainly in the history of African-American life. That was Vernon Jordan. And I want to play a little of Clinton's eulogy for Vernon Jordan, which speaks to the depth of the relationship. Listen to this. God, we were lucky he was here. Lucky he was our friend. lucky that in this imperfect world, somehow he found us and we found him. When they closed that coffin today, I felt like a part of my heart was gonna be pulled out of my body. I just didn't wanna let him go. Bill Clinton gave a 30 minute long eulogy of Vernon Jordan. It was really the highlight of that memorial service. And, you know, it was incredibly moving. Yeah. And, you know, it's fair to say that Bill Clinton is no longer what he used to be behind the podium, but when he's on, he's on. And, and for Vernon, he really was, oh, it, was,
1: it, was. it was
0: such an emotional speech. Yes. And he spoke of Vernon Jordan so beautifully and laid out his life in such a way, even if you're not you know, a sappy sentimentalist, you're still watching someone who can really tell a tale about a great man and who also happens to be his best friend. Yeah. I mean, you know, I found myself a little weepy. So I'd love for you to talk about that. You know, Bill Clinton, the guy who has thousands of friends. I mean, that's not an exaggeration, literally thousands of friends, but Vernon Jordan becomes the first among equals, right? And that's a story that you tell in great detail in the book.
1: Yeah. And just to punctuate that point, I was actually able to ask Bill Clinton, who is your best friend? And just to the point we were making earlier, he said, Well, let me think about it. I got to come back to you. Because I think he had, you know, he had a couple of other people that he's become extremely close to over the last 30, 40 years. So he considered, but he called back and said, Yeah, it's Vernon. And for me, that was welcome news because the first interview I did when I decided to write this book was Vernon. And I went to his office at Lazard and he had at the table where we were eating lunch. His memoir, Vernon Can Read, and he opened it up. He said, Gary, you know why I ended this book in 1992? I said, No, Vernon. He said, Because I'm going to tell the story of my friendship with Bill Clinton, nobody else. So I think he had every intention, actually, of writing a sequel that would primarily focus on this unique friendship, this really incredibly multifaceted friendship that the two enjoyed. Beginning in nineteen seventy seven, as I say in my book, and extending right up until the very end. I know that Bill and Hillary went down to see him at his Calorama house after he suffered a stroke. I went down and had lunch with him the day that Joe Biden was declared president. And you know it was tough to see because Vernon was such a giant of a man and to see him in any way oh. you know slowed by Diminished. Right. Diminished by a stroke was, you know, very difficult because he was a giant of a man. And I think in part, what really drew these two men together was that they were both larger-than-life figures with genuine love for each other because they shared common interests, a love of the game, of politics and sport. They were both magnetic, electrifying personalities who knew together they were even more electric and, ma- and magnetic and understood the power of that combination in any room that they walked in. They loved women. They both had a tremendous appetite for women and loved to be around women and loved
0: the kind of, you know, give and take of being with women. Yes, I would say something close to, in both cases, an insatiable appetite for women. And those two guys could be smutty. Yeah, sure. I'm not trying to be prurient about it. I mean, like there was this whole secret life that Bill Clinton had, you know, and obviously he was not discreet enough about it in some ways. But I think like Vernon also fell into the circle of trust. He did. He did. They both were dogs. And I I say this not approvingly or or disapprovingly. It's just like, who can you trust? with all your indiscretions. And Clinton thought that he could trust Jordan and they were rebald with each other. They told a lot of dirty jokes. Exactly. They were ultimate bros in some yeah, ways. Yeah. There was like a lot of things about them that were very similar in that regard.
1: hundred oh, you know? percent. And also, you know, their shared desire to see the betterment of African-Americans in their native South. Yes. They both grew up in segregated cities. They both saw the pernicious effects of segregation and they both wanted to improve the lot of black Americans in every aspect of life. And I think that too was just as bonding in a way, not certainly socially, like we're talking about in terms of their love of politics, women, and sport, but that too, I think initially bonded them and intellectually bonded them. But just going back, John, to your point about the trust level, I think Bill Clinton, and I don't think I know this because I talked to, to the president after my book came out and he drew a very important distinction for me that I was not aware of when I wrote the book, which is they did talk about women, but Clinton made the point to me that he never talked about his women, the women that he was involved with outside of his marriage. And he said it was for two reasons. One is he was ashamed of those relationships, and two is he never wanted to implicate his closest friends like Vernon. And I think he was trying to tell me that, that in the context of the whole Lewinsky saga, right. that Vernon really did not know that he was sexually involved with Monica Lewinsky, nor was did he know about any of his other affairs with women, either during his presidency or before.
0: Well, I, I, will, I will reserve judgment on whether I believe that story or not. And, and yeah, look, everyone has complicated feelings about Bill Clinton, and in particular about Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. But here's a guy, if you believe him, didn't tell Vernon Jordan about his relationship with Monica, but did ask him to get her a job at Revlon. And, you know, Vernon was not a guy who had a lot of public controversies in his life. Right. And he was very careful about his public image and very careful about staying out of trouble. But here he was caught up in this extraordinarily tawdry scandal, really for the first time he'd ever been touched or singed or burned by anything like that, when his best friend, Bill Clinton, asked him to go and do this very sleazy thing for this intern who he is in the process of sexually harassing. Sure. As we now know it, and what we then said was carrying on an affair with his intern. Yeah. But you're saying not only that he kind of kept the details from Vernon. Yeah. But, but that he didn't disclose the basic fact of it to Vernon Jordan. Is that is that really your view? Listen, I don't think it took
1: a genius... I don't think Bill Clinton had to say to Vernon Jordan, <laughs> right. I'm sleeping with this woman, get her a job. Yes. I think the fact yeah. that Betty Curry called and said the president would like you to get a job was enough for him to infer that without him telling yeah. him that. Yes, But I do think just to
0: that point. Vernon was no dummy. No, he was no I dummy. That's what but one doing. thing
1: i learned, which I didn't quite appreciate when I was writing the book, and I, I suggest Damn. that at the end of the book, when I talk about Vernon going over an empty White House in either December or early January of 2001, just before Clinton's vacating the house. And they have this kind of come to Jesus six hour drink fest, where obviously just Vernon is drinking because the president doesn't drink. But what I learned later on from a conversation I had with Clinton after the book came out was that I think there was a real tension between the two of them in the last two years of Clinton's presidency that they never quite talked out. It was the first kind of genuine Rift that they had, and I think it emanated really from Vernon. To your point, that a man who liked to be behind the scenes was suddenly thrust into a national spotlight, yes, forced to testify for 20 hours before a grand jury. His credibility was called into question, yeah. his veracity was called into question, yes. And I think, as a proud man, he didn't appreciate it, yes. And I yeah. think the one deficiency in my theory about their friendship is that I don't think Vernon Jordan was able to quite talk it out with Clinton until they met. At the end of Clinton's term. I think tears kind of flowed for both men that night. I think Clinton was finally able to truly seek repentance from Jordan, and I think Jordan gave it to him. And I think it enabled them to then have resumed their friendship for the final 20 years of Vernon's life. But I didn't appreciate just how interrupting that event was in their otherwise really just delightful friendship
0: for 40 some years. You know we could talk about these stories all day long about the various presidents but i'll tell you one of the things that really struck me as i kind of cruised through these stories i don't mean to seem like too much of a gutter snipe here but you know you've got lincoln and his relationship with joshua speed who he shares the same bed with for years this gentleman right yeah and there's you know it's you no know, historians debate the nature of the relationship to this day if you want to put it in the most kind of academic dry terms you know you got nixon and bb rebozo You know, some dude wrote a book a few years ago saying that Nixon and Bibi Rebozo were lovers. Yeah, the evidence was a little flimsy, though, unfortunately. I mean, listen, I would have loved to have been able to assert that,
1: you know, what could be more fun?
0: But I raised the question, you know, you talk about FDR and Daisy Suckley, and you go through all of the women that were around Roosevelt. Daisy Suckley, it doesn't seem like there was a sexual relationship there, but you know, we know that Roosevelt had lots of very close relationships with lots of women while he was in office. The thing I'm trying to tease out here is just to say that in a lot of these cases, there's some kind of either sexual or quasi-sexual. And I can't tell whether it's it's there, yeah, or it's people later trying to read something in because they are so close to these presidents and the presidency is at least in, in the older days, not anymore, but the presidency was so closed off that when people saw presidents with these really very intense relationships that they kind of inferred certain things sure. or they, they projected on it. Right. I'm curious what you make of that because it is a common thread in a lot of these relationships, right? It is. Well, at least three, yes. And you point out
1: all three. But you know, in each, I did try to figure it out. It's impossible to figure out. You know, I mean, I tried to get a hold of Jane Luck, who was Bibi Rebozo's second wife, who's still alive. Because I thought that at this point in her life, would she be more open about it? Because listen, I think BB Rebozo's sexuality was a, certainly an open question. Yeah, but I think it's also a measure of just how close they were—the inordinate amount of time that BB and Nixon spent together. Now, was it ultimately driven by a sexual attraction? Perhaps, but I don't think it changes the essential character of the friendship, which was, you know, that Nixon knew he needed a best friend; otherwise, he would just sink deeper into a, his dark, and brooding mindset. And he picked a friend who gave him space to sit in his silence, as he often needed to think his dark thoughts, but then knew just when to draw him back out and bring bring him back to civilization. With Speed and Lincoln, it's to me a little bit clearer that they weren't because there was a lot of people who witnessed that friendship in Springfield, Illinois. You know, There was a social club beneath their bed on the first floor. Their bed was on the second floor. And there was never any hint to anybody who was around that it was anything other than a platonic friendship. And none of their correspondents suggested it. they talked about their women all the time.
0: They talked about their fear of consummating their marriages. So, yeah, just to clarify here, you know, Joshua Speed was a guy who owned a dry goods store. Right. And Lincoln walks into that store one day looking to buy a bed this is the way the story is told in the book right gary and he did the beds are too expensive for lincoln who doesn't have a lot of dough and so speed ends up saying to him hey i, I got a yep. bed upstairs you can share it with me which you know i mean at least sitting here in 2021 is a kind of loaded offer i would say and lincoln takes him up on it yeah and they slept together in that bed for the next four years It's like, you know, a lot of people, I'm not the first person who's raised the question. There's an easy leap to make that maybe something was going on in that bed beyond just sleeping.
1: Right. But remember, again, there weren't a lot of Marriott's or Hilton's, you know, in Springfield, Illinois, or anywhere in Illinois at that point. And Lincoln was a lawyer. Yeah. He would ride the circuit with judges. And so these guys would just jump into bed with each other. That was just a common practice. So you have to put these stories into their historical moment. And I think it, it helps explain why they were able to share this bed. And perhaps not be lovers. Well, more, most likely not be lovers, I should say.
0: This is the difference between you and me, Gary. You as the historian and author here have to put them in the proper perspective. I'm allowed to just be sensationalist and and, (laughs) and superficial and try to enter. Better story. No question. I I it Well, you know, like I said, I think it just raises questions. I think we need to explore the questions and meet them head on. You've done that very well just now. Here's my question about all of this, Right. Like no one's ever done this book before. No. It's like there's been a million books written about politics. Yeah. A million books. Okay. I hate giving anybody credit. Hmm. I hate it. I hate it. But you like actually found a new way to write about the presidency here. Like there's no one's written this book before. Yeah. It's not like a different, like literally I, I, no one's done this book ever before. And like, it's pretty hard given the hundreds of years of presidential books that have been written to find a new angle. And you found one.
1: Yeah, I shocked myself, frankly.
0: Yeah. And again, on your first book. So it's like, I can't, I believe some like Michael Beschloss isn't sitting there like want to put a gun in their mouth. Like how did Gary Ginsburg get this story ahead of me? <laughs> if I was a professional historian, I'd be pretty fucking pissed at myself. <laughs> he was incredibly, I called him. I think a week after I came up with the idea and I told him about it nicest man in America. He was incredibly helpful. Nicest man in America.
1: Yes, he was. I asked him about Johnson, who his first friend was. He gave me a name. I couldn't quite get the story enough to want to write the chapter, but he read my
0: Clinton chapter. It was incredibly gracious with comments. Yeah. He's like 10 times nicer than you and about a hundred times, <laughs> yes. ni- times nicer than me. <laughs> He's a very, very, very nice man. Yeah. But here was my point. This is to me, the ultimate conundrum, like why this matters so much. And the conundrum is this. Even more than the conundrum of Bill Clinton having a thousand friends, but still needing Vernon Jordan is this conundrum, right? You've been in the White House, as I've been in the White House as a reporter, and you know two things about it. Number one, it's a fucking train station. There's a million people there jammed into that building and everybody says the building's big, but it's not that big. And there's a lot of people who work in there in these little rabbit warren offices. And even in the residence, you know, it's a big house by any normal human standards, but it's a lot of activity, you know, and you're the president and you're scheduled every four minutes, like in four minute increments. Right. You're like constantly talking to people, even if you're an introvert, you're constantly talking to people. Right. So you're FaceTime with people. You're interacting all day long. People are on top of you and they want decisions. They want you to shake hands. They want you to take pictures and all of that, right? Mm-hmm. That's the first thing that's true. And the next thing that's true Is this the loneliest job in the world? Correct. Where like you feel isolated and you feel like no one understands you and all these fucking people are talking to you, but none of them get it. And every president talks about this, that they get into the job and they realize how alone they are. That conundrum, it seems to me, is at the core of this whole thing and why the first friend is so important. Exactly right. And just to kind of crystallize your
1: observation, Roosevelt said in 1944, I'm either exhibit A are left entirely alone. That is what you're describing. And when they're left entirely alone, more often than not, given most presidents' personalities, that is anathema to their existence, to be alone. Yes, Certainly it was for Clinton. It even was for FDR, who ended up being probably the loneliest president despite fighting a depression and a world war. And so they look for that respite. They look for that antidote. To loneliness. And that's where the first friend comes in. It's when those cameras turn off, when the applause stops, and when they have to then face their demons by themselves. And they often don't want to. And so who is it that they can call on who will fill that void, give them the respite they need so that they're recharged to start the next day and start that first of 22 meetings? Who is it in the darkness of the the middle of the night when they want to pick up the phone, who's going to tell them what they need to hear about their conduct, about, you know, a decision that they have to make that is within the grasp of the friend. And that's why I thought it was an important new lens, because these people, as I hopefully showed in the book, play that important role, either on an emotional level or on a substantive level, to help keep the president balanced, happy, functioning, and in a way that most people just have never actually looked at or recognized. And so that was the idea, you know, hopefully I showed it in the nine stories that I wrote about.
0: We're going to talk later in this show about Trump and about Biden, because neither of them is covered in the book for different reasons, yep. which we'll get to. But before we talk about Joe Biden and whether he has a first friend, and if he has a first friend who it is, we may have different opinions about this. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and before we talk about Donald Trump and whether or not his lack of ability to have a real friendship was in fact a crippling deficit, among many crippling deficits I would stipulate, uh, we're going to take a break right now and play some ads. And then we're going to talk before we talk about all that other stuff, we're going to talk about Someone who has actually played the role of first friend, someone who's like maybe the ultimate consigliere of all the people that I know, a man who has served as first friend to many powerful people, first friend or at least consigliere, at least kind of the aide de camp to many powerful people. That would be Gary Ginsburg. <laughs> Haha. What, what an interesting guy he is. We'll, we'll get to that right after the break here on Hell and I Water. thought there couldn't be a year more disorienting, disruptive, and disturbing than 2020? Well, 2021, right up there, pretty close. I mean, it's kind of hard to get your head around everything that happened, but here at The Recount, that's what we do. So, John Battelle, my co-founder, partner, and the CEO of the company, and I are going to be hosting a live event on Thursday, December 9th, at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. Pacific Time. Battelle and I will be unpacking the top stories in politics, tech, business, and culture from 2021, from the insurrection to vaccinations, the metaverse to crypto, the culture wars, and more. JB and I, Recounting 2021. Register for this event at recount.co slash recounting2021. That's recount.co slash recounting2021 to watch Battelle and I deliberate, dissect, and discuss the tumultuous year that was. And we're back with Gary Ginsberg on Hell in High Water. Gary, my friend, the author of the critically acclaimed, best-selling, page-turning, epic seminal. And as I said before, groundbreaking in the sense no one's ever fucking plowed this ground before. I can't believe it. You can get it anywhere. You get your books. I don't like to advertise for that Bezos fellow, but first friends, the powerful, the unsung and unelected people who shaped our presidents. But here's some sound. I'd like to play some sound to get us into the Gary Ginsburg portion of our conversation of someone who you were really close friends with and someone who was also, you know, not a president, but maybe a future president before tragedy fell. This is John F. Kennedy Jr. talking about a magazine that he started in the 1990s that Gary worked on. Let's listen to John Kennedy Jr. We decided, I mean actually taking a cue from from folks like yourself and you around the nineteen ninety two election that that there was an opportunity here to uh change the definition of a political magazine. Uh certainly the way Americans were uh accessing information about politics and politicians was changing. Uh candidates were appearing on late night talk shows, on talk radio, on sitcoms, uh and there was a, a kind of a leveling process and while the rest of media clearly had caught up with that we felt that political magazines per se hadn't so there he is yeah your friend from brown university after you left the clinton administration right you went straight into this talk about george because people don't remember it they talk about your relationship with john and they kind of launched you into what became a, a pretty long career in media after you left politics behind yeah the story of george is again one of those things lost to most younger people's memories i have no idea there was even a magazine called george or the john f kennedy jr ran one yeah and you were there. Yes, I was actually there right at the start because as John said in the clip, he was fascinated
1: watching the 92 campaign and seeing these personalities emerge from Clinton's staff. I remember when George Stephanopoulos went on the Today Show, John called me afterwards. He's like, wow, this guy's becoming like a celebrity. And I think it reminded him of the stories he heard about his father's campaign in 1960, kind of the celebrification of the Kennedy Campaign when it went to LA for the convention, and you know, Sammy Davis Jr. and Marilyn Monroe and Frank Sinatra, and this intersection that developed between politics and popular culture. And he saw that same phenomenon at play in the 92 campaign. And that's where the idea of George was born. He really wanted to do consistent with his own political philosophy a kind of post partisan magazine magazine that didn't look at politics from the left or the right as every other political magazine did at the time you know you only had magazines like the nation or the new republic or commentary or the national review and he wanted to create a magazine in four color that was not political that looked at politics not from an issue standpoint per se but from a personality and process point of view that was able to draw in a much wider variety of reader than just your Washington New York political readers so we did this magazine called George it launched in 1995 to incredible fanfare we printed a 1.2 million copies for our <laughs> first issue imagine that, right? That's more than primetime TV shows get today.
0: It was also just a sensation. Again, I think it just speaks a little bit to like the combination of his star power and celebrity and this moment when things like that could still have like that. This is just the thing that we're beyond now, right? Yeah. The world is just too broken down into little itty bitty pieces for anything to command this kind of attention. That's like a new media product, let alone a a magazine. Yeah. Right. And also, I think the fact that politicians
1: use popular culture now to sell themselves is not in any way novel. You know, when Bill Clinton went on the Arsenio Hall show and played his saxophone, that was a big moment. You know, people freaked out. Or when he talked about his underwear on MTV. And so, you know, John saw that and recognized that there was a magazine to be had that kind of embellished that in all of its manifestations whether it was politics and art, politics and fashion, politics and sports, politics and music. And, you know, for a, a period there it really caught on. And then I think what happened was advertisers couldn't quite categorize it. You know, is it the New Republic or is it Vanity Fair? And at the end of the day, their inability to kind of figure out what it was, and who its real core readership was, I think doomed it. And it just kind of ran out of steam on an advertising side. And it was going to
0: close, unfortunately, when John died. I guess my question about this is, and and this leads to you, just for the hell of it, I want to play this little piece of Gary Ginsburg sound from this time talking about this magazine, just to hear what you sounded like when you were a very young man. You've done your research, John. That's impressive. Talking about one, yes, I've talked about one issue of the magazine. There was an issue of George that focused right on point here, focused right on the question of politics and the media and the press. did a special issue on that. And here's Gary describing it.
1: Well, the media obviously is playing a paramount role in the discussion and the pursuance of the American political agenda. And so, as you say, we probe uh, various aspects of the press. We, we, uh, we do a very in-depth analysis of Maureen Dowd, who's perhaps the most feared journalist in America today. A uh, story on Sam Donaldson. Uh, we rate the pundits uh, we have a poll by Yankelovich and Associates rating the television anchors. So it's a really comprehensive look at the at the role of the press and then specific individuals within the press.
0: So, number one, you sound a lot younger there. I do. Number two, you use the word pursuance, which I'm pretty sure is a no word. Who uses
1: that word? I, that not, I, don't exact, I don't think
0: it actually, it actually is yeah. a word. Maureen <laughs> Dowd, name check there. She's still around and yes. powerful. Uh, Sam Donaldson. No one knows who Sam Donaldson is who listens. Yes. No, I don't even think people our age know who Sam Donaldson <laughs> is anymore. He was a famous uh, yes. reporter with a hairpiece. Right. And then you wonder why the magazine had trouble uh, being categorized with advertisers. We have a poll by Yankelevich and Associates rating the television anchors. I mean, you guys were spending money commissioning <laughs> polls on rating the anchors. You wonder why the magazine was a commercial failure. Um, that's a good...
1: Uh, we thought we were so clever, too, when we were doing it. And yeah, I'm sure you did. I'm yeah. sure you did.
0: It's like, like, who's better, Fred Barnes or Morton
1: Kondraki? <laughs> yeah, I think that's when our circulation went from one... 1.2 down to like 200,000 about
0: that point. Here's my question about this as you did this magazine. And then from there, you move on to two big high profile media jobs, one working at News Corp for Rupert Murdoch, and then moving on after that to work at Time Warner for Jeffrey Bucus. I guess my question is just as a human being, right? You know, you grew up in Buffalo, went to law school, worked in the Clinton administration. That was kind of like a path towards politics. And all of a sudden now you're in this other path and you just laid out the fact that politics and media obviously intersect, right? But you suddenly move into this place where starting with your friend John, yeah. who was, you know, I got a friend you met in college, but he was still John F. Kennedy Jr. When you met him, you know, you move on and work for Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. you know, These are big people. They're the equivalent of presidents, right? Maybe Mm -hmm. more powerful than presidents in the case of Rupert Murdoch. I'm curious what it is about those kinds of people that you gravitated towards. And again, your time in the Clinton White House was not that long, but you were there, right? You work. Al Gore, Bill Clinton, John F. Kennedy Jr., Rupert Murdoch, Jeffrey Buchus. You know, like you have been the right hand, the hand of the king, whatever you want to call it from Game of Thrones, to a lot of people like that in politics and then in media. Talk about like that career arc and what it says about your personality and, your, and the kind of work you like to do and the kind of people you like to hang out I'm
1: with. I'm not sure it was an intentional career arc. I'm going to go work for powerful people. I started out wanting to be a lawyer and I worked for a very large Wall Street law firm and it was pure drudgery for me because I spent most of my time in isolation writing briefs. And I was, as I got deeper into it, I was in my fourth year at Simpson-Thatcher, I realized I'm wasting my skills. What are my skills? I've got good judgment. I've got good EQ. I like to advise. I like to be in the game. I like to be involved in issues that have import with people who have power. And here I am sitting writing affidavits and and briefs. And so when I got the chance to work on the Clinton campaign, I gave up a very cushy Wall Street legal job and took a salary that was a fifth of what I was making. I then went and worked for a political magazine that was, you know, even I was wearing t-shirts and jeans sitting in a cubicle while my law school classmates were making partner at you know, major investment banks and law firms. And I think I just knew that ultimately my skill set was much better suited to working around people, using my ability to spot issues and kind of work through issues, as well as write a little bit, as well as argue, as well as provide I thought wise counsel, you know, I'd read about, I, listen, I, so one of my heroes was Clark Clifford growing up. Yeah. I read, you know, the Holbrook book about, you know, counselor. And I loved I, I love the role of Clark Clifford. You know, I was a student of the presidency from the age of nine years old. And I wanted to write a book about chiefs of staff because I thought, you know, the ultimate job for me in life would be a chief of staff
0: would have loved to have done that. Some of us want to be a baseball player when they grow up. Some people want to be an astronaut. Yeah, Other I want to be a chief of want staff. Clark, I want to be Clark Clifford. You know?
1: I mean, is the first time I've ever actually <laughs> thought about this, this length or articulated, but I think that was part of really what drove me. And I got lucky. I mean, pure luck that brought me to Rupert Murdoch because at the very moment when I wanted to transition into media, he was looking for kind of a right. right-hand person.
0: I will say that I think not to be Dr. Marinus or Dr. Freud here but I do think that the fact that you had this arc is part of the explanation for why you were able to like you know I've complimented you I think fairly for coming up with a new way of writing about the presidency no one's done this kind of book before you seized on the first friend thing I think at least part of it has to be rooted in the fact that these were not all first friend roles you were not Ruben Burdock's first friend you were not you know but i think the roles that you served in opened your eyes i cannot yes. help but imagine that they opened your eyes to what powerful people need 100% i want to talk a little bit more about the news corp rupert murdoch of it all here and you know you said you got incredibly lucky that when you wanted to get into media he was looking for the kind of person that you were to come inside you and i've talked about this over the years so this is not going to be shocking to you and because it's your life you know there are people who are horrified that you went to work for murdoch even back then it was what, 1999 you went yeah. to work for Murdoch? 1999, yeah. after John died, right? So the idea, you know, Fox News is really different now than it was then. Like, the Fox News of 2021 is not Fox News of 1999. However, Fox News was still, like, conservative. It was the, uh, yeah. the ardently, archly conservative network. And there were a lot of people who were like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, no, I get it. So how did you think about that? Not from yeah. the perspective of what Rupert wanted from you. And I know what you will say partly is, I was going to go there and tell him the truth. But the, still the question is, why? Like, why go work for because the conservative organ that it was, which was not your politics, not your cause? They were going to spend a lot of time trying to tear down yeah. Democrats, candidates and presidents who you supported. So why help?
1: Uh, absolutely fair. But remember, News Corp was a lot more than Fox News at the time. News Corp was 20th Century Fox, was the Simpsons, was the Fox Network, was the NFL on Fox, Yeah, was, you know, there were hundreds of assets Ninety-nine percent of the assets, and it was a huge company when I joined it. Ninety-nine had nothing to do with politics, and there were a lot of staunch Democrats. Peter Chernin was the number two; he's a big, big Democrat today. There were dozens of us. I mean, perhaps not in that inner circle. There was me and Chernin, but it was very easy to take that job because a because it was basically a political company, albeit with Fox News. And Fox News, to your point, was just a blip at that point. You know, It was only three years old. It barely had just gotten carriage in New York City. It was really in 2000 with the election and in Florida, in November and December, where it started to really gain traction. But remember, Bill Clinton ended up spending a lot of time with Rupert Murdoch. Rupert wanted to give Bill Clinton a, a show on Fox at one point. We went up to His office in Harlem in 2002. He came down to News Corp for lunch with us. He toured the New York Post. We ended up endorsing Hillary Clinton for the Senate in 2006 and doing a fundraiser for her. He was going to endorse Barack Obama. I introduced him to Obama in 2008, and I thought he was going to endorse him. So, you know, was I able to influence him? I hope I was. I hope I was able to open up his world and his eyes to politicians other than right wing conservatives. He embraced them. Yeah. We ended up supporting the Clinton Global Initiative. Al Gore came to our yeah two thousand and six I mean so my point is is that I wasn't slavish to a right wing media company. That yeah, was not yeah. my and if that had become my job, I would not have stayed. But I thought that I was having an influence on moderating him politically, socially, temperamentally. And so I don't look back on it and say, no, I was just an enabler of a really demonic right wing media organization. That was not my job.
0: Well, one of the people who agrees with you from beyond the grave, who agrees with you that you were having influence over Rupert Murdoch and trying to, and in some ways, in monitoring him, was Roger Ailes, who was it, I think we would, we would agree, Roger Demonic. That's a word that you would apply to, to Roger, right? In retrospect, yes. 100%. Yes. And, and, you know, in retrospect, for sure. But, you know, you were at News Corp from 1999 to 2010. And so in that period, as you just said, you know, you have the 2000 election, you have 9-11. You have the Bush administration lying to get us into the war in Iraq. You also have the election of Barack Obama. And in that period, Fox News becomes, A, way more powerful, and B, way more untethered from journalistic principle, let's put it that way, and much more, not as radical as it is now, but becomes much more of a house organ for the conservative movement and for the Republican Party. And Roger, who's driving a lot of that and making a ton of money for Rupert Murdoch in the process becomes a very, very big figure, already was a big figure in American media because a very big figure in American media and politics. I want to play just a clip from the the Showtime series from The Loudest Voice that has Roger interacting with Murdoch toward the end of what would have been the end of your time. Obviously, I, we know this is a docudrama. This is not a documentary. But I want to play it just to hear this interaction between them. I want to ask you not whether the whole series rings true, because I'm pretty sure you're going to say that there are a lot of things in that series that don't ring true. But I'm only curious about whether this sounds true. So let's know this thing of Russell Crowe playing Roger Ailes, talking to Rupert Murdoch right after Barack Obama gets elected.
1: This guy's not a president. He's a community organizer, which makes him a communist. He has no blood understanding of this country. And that's something Fox was in the middle of exposing before you tied my hands. There is nothing to expose. Besides, I endorsed McCain. 12 years, I've been loyal to you. And I have delivered to you the number one news network in this country. No one else could have done that. And I value your contributions. My contributions, which are roughly around $500 million a year in profit, based off my ideas, my formats, and my editorial decisions. I know you and your wife think I'm some kind of paranoid right-wing nutjob But you Wendy
0: and I... I'm the but...
1: same paranoid nutjob who is lining your pockets. You should just let me keep doing that.
0: So here's the thing. When I watched this series on a network that I work for at Showtime, it was at that moment that I thought, yeah, really? Yeah. You know, I mean, Rogers Rogers was a pretty demonic figure. Like, does that really ring true? And I thought for one moment, I thought, no, it doesn't ring true. And then I thought, well, maybe it does ring true. I'll ask Gary. It
1: does. I'll tell you the backstory because it's never really been told in its entirety. But what that refers to is what happened in 2008. So Rupert became utterly enamored of Obama. And Obama smartly, with Axelrod, recognized that if I can get Rupert Murdoch to endorse me, I'll bring in a whole cadre of voters who otherwise would never consider me. So Axelrod started reaching out to me in May of 2008, and we finally scheduled a meeting for June, right after the I think it was the Oregon primary when he basically locked it up. So we meet at the Waldorf, and Axelrod calls me and says, "We're coming in tomorrow. Let's let's meet." So I went to see Rupert and I said, okay, here's the plan. They want to meet you and they want to meet Roger. My suggestion is you meet with Obama alone. We'll put Roger in another room and then we'll bring Roger in at the end. And he said, great idea. So Rupert and I went and met with Obama. It went swimmingly well. I then went at some point and got Ailes because I think Obama really wanted to confront Ailes about his coverage in the Fox on the network because, you know, it was the fist pumping. It was Barack Hussein Obama. It was, he's a Muslim. You know, it was just really nasty shit. Let's be clear. Palling around with terrorists. Palling around with terrorists. And Obama had had enough. So he had two goals with this meeting. One was to charm Murdoch, which he was successful at in the first 45 minutes. And then there's the showdown with Ailes. And so Rupert, Ailes, and I on one end, Obama, Gibbs, and Axelrod on the other side. And they have this kind of no holds barred just the debate about the nature of our democracy, about the military, about immigration, about you know every divisive issue that Ailes had been just pounding the shit out of Obama on the air with. And they come to some kind of understanding that Obama will come back on the air, that they'll temper their coverage. And then Murdoch afterwards says, I'm really interested in this guy. I want to have more conversations with him. So set up three Sunday night Conversations between Obama and Murdoch in August of two thousand and eight they talked one conversation just about education, another about the environment, and a third about the economy and At the end, I think Murdoch is seriously considering endorsing Barack Obama in two thousand and eight i mean it 's moving in that direction, and I think in part, he had seen the benefits of endorsing Tony Blair in one thousand nine hundred and ninety six you know as a labor candidate, yep, and as a result of that, you know it was a really close relationship between our businesses in London, and the government. And a lot of good can come from that kind of close relationship. And I think we only need to look at what the Trump administration did for Murdoch between 2017 and 2021 to see the benefits of having a president in your grasp, essentially. And I think Rupert, always being transactional, both really liked Barack Obama, but also saw the benefits of being close to a president. Yeah. What right. happened was Ailes really felt like any minute, he was going to get that call from me or from Murdoch saying, okay, we're endorsing Obama and you're going to change your coverage. And so for weeks during August and July of 2008, he'd call me and say, what's going on up there? You know, Am I going to get my balls cut off? And a story about that meeting at the Waldorf between Ailes, Murdoch, and Obama comes out in Vanity Fair. Somebody breached a confidence and wrote it. And Ailes used that as his leverage to march into Murdoch's office. It's like September 6, 2008, and say, essentially, if you don't endorse John McCain this Friday and give me a new five-year contract, I'm quitting. And he basically put a gun to Murdoch's head. Murdoch had to make a decision. He capitulated to Roger, gave him a new five-year deal. We endorsed John McCain the following Friday. And this dalliance with Obama went by the wayside.
0: It's a great story in the sense that it's illuminating of so many things. First of all, Murdoch's psyche and, and Murdoch's, I would say, total untetheredness from any kind of actual principle and belief and just like kind of like playing the angles in a whole bunch of different ways, but also that Roger ultimately wins, you know, yeah, like in the end. But to your point, it's it's a billion dollars of profit that wins. Yeah, so I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, in the end for Rupert, it's like all about the money. And in the end, Roger was like, you know, everything he says in that part in that thing is all true. It's basically like Roger, you know, invented an incredible thing in Fox News. I mean, an incredible, I think, dangerous thing, but so an astonishing creation that it's made tons of money for Rupert. And in the end, it was like, here's the bread, here's the butter. Sure, of course. You see where the bread and the butter yeah, are here, dude. And in the end, Murdoch capitulates completely. And shortly thereafter, Gary Ginsburg's out of the company. And Roger is prancing around, according to one account that I read in New York Magazine. The day that Ginsburg left, Roger walked into his afternoon editorial meeting, dropped the press release onto the conference table and said, in life there are winners and there are... <laughs> uh, I think yeah. maybe he was referring to you and I think probably the words fucking losers would have come out next out of his mouth mm-hmm. and just smiled as people passed around the note. Yeah. Well, he knew I was trying to cut his head off. Yes, and and he thought he'd cut yours off. Did you feel like he cut yours off no, in the end, that no. you
1: were another victim of Roger? No, no. I mean, by that point, I was already on my way to Time Warner, you know, it's not like my head was chopped off and I went slinking into the wilderness. So it didn't happen. You know, did he get me out of the company? Yes. Did my friendship with Murdoch survive? Yes, it did. And so he had a deal with me and he ended up calling me, ironically, two months before he died, just because he felt lonely and <laughs> called me out of the blue on a Saturday morning. So I think he respected me in a weird way because I was, you know, I was doing my job. I was, you know, I thought doing what was best for Murdoch and for the company. And I think there was a begrudging respect from him. But yeah, was he happy that I was gone from that inner council? Absolutely, because he saw me as a
0: real threat to what he was trying to do at Fox News. I'll ask you one last thing about this and we'll take another break. This is my last Fox News related question, which is, you know... You you leave and have a long run at Time Warner now watching Fox operate and get crazier yeah and get more propagandistic and get all the insanity of Roger's personal stuff related to all of the sexual assault and sexual harassment allegations and watch him destroyed in many ways but in the end even though Trump starts running as kind of the anti-Fox Republican was much more like in bed with Breitbart and other more like populist further right outlets in the end Fox becomes like really state television for, yep. for Trump as president, yep. as you watched all that, and you know there's all this other internal drama going on with the Murdoch kids, yep. like what do you make of Fox News today? Oh, I find it absolutely detestable.
1: I find it to be an instrument that could ultimately bring down our democracy. And it is, it's horrifying to think that it, I played a role, you know, albeit from the periphery, in any part of its growth because, you know, it's a very different channel. Than the one that I saw. I mean, as right wing as it was, it wasn't as, you know, it's it's basically become anti-democratic, the way I'm looking at it right now. And they would have no problem supporting Donald Trump's return and anarchy that would result. And that just horrifies me. And, and I think it it has to horrify Rupert on one level. It has to, because I know Rupert, he's a patriot. The man has principles, but I think he's lost control of it now to an extent that I didn't see when I was there a decade ago. And I really fear for the country if it is allowed to stay on the track it's on.
0: As do I. Do you think there's any hope with the kids that they'll come in, you know, somehow like tether it back to not reality (laughs) necessarily, but maybe turn it into something less than a giant propaganda spewing, conspiracy theory stoking hate machine? Not with its current leadership, no. I think it's going to stay
1: on that trajectory and perhaps get worse.
0: With that happy note, we'll take another break here. Gary's <laughs> like, you know, it's really a threat to American democracy. And will anything fix it? No, it's going to get worse, for sure. Um, it's like- uh, well,
1: Listen, I think there's a hope. know, I, I believe. I, I, I'm, I'm with you. It, just needs, it needs a change in leadership at the top. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And I don't know if it's going to happen. Do you think Rupert will die ever? No. I mean, yeah, (laughs) I think he's,
1: I mean, listen, his mom lived till she was 103, he's only 90. So you figure he's got perhaps another decade and a decade. A lot of shit can happen in a decade.
0: And and at least 70 years of drinking the blood of young babies to allow him to to live forever. Um, I kid sort of. We're going to take a break and come back for the final section of our discussion here with Gary Ginsburg, author of First Friends, the powerful, unsung and unelected people who shaped our presidents. We'll come back to that topic after these words. And we're back for part three with Gary Ginsburg. I find this conversation is delightful in every way, because Gary's like disclosing things that he hasn't really talked about before. Yeah, I'm not sure what the fuck I just did by telling you that story. Yeah,
1: man, I think that's pretty good. (laughs) But part of it is just just going back, and I don't mean to sound defensive, but, you know, Rupert was not, he's not really an ideologue. That's what's so interesting.
0: It's not like he likes Donald Trump. We're going to come to Trump in a second. So let's just focus on the current day. And as I said before, I was going to come back and we're going to talk about joe biden and donald trump but i want to start first and talk about joe biden and play a little bit of sound here of someone who in my opinion is really joe biden's first friend valerie biden owens joe's sister
1: my brother understands the enormity of the job and the the serious responsibility that comes with this remember he's been in the white house for eight years he is the most experienced person to ever enter the White House in, the hist- in American history because of his years in 36 years in the Senate and then his eight with President Obama. My advice to him in the campaign, and this may sound simplistic, is just be Joe. Listen up to what everyone has to say and look for the truth.
0: So my experience, Gary, having known the 46th president for a pretty long time, is that there's a triumvirate. And, you know, one is his wife, Dr. Jill, the first lady. The other is Val, who ran every campaign he's ever run up until the last one, up until 2020, was right. the campaign manager, or at least ostensibly the campaign manager, sometimes a little bit more of a figurehead, but still was very intimately involved in every run, the first two presidential runs, the failed ones, and all the Senate runs. And then Ted Kaufman, who's the person I know you have said, if you were going to write about Joe Biden, you would have talked about Ted Kaufman. So talk about, first of all, why Joe Biden's not in this book? Mm-hmm. Did you think about including him? Was it a timing issue? And and then what you think you know on the basis of research? Yeah. You know, our friends in politics, et cetera, about yeah. who would be this part? Whether you think I'm right about Valerie, I think you think it's Ted Kaufman, but we'll talk about it.
1: No, I I don't disagree that Valerie is probably his closest friend, but I excluded close family from my definition of friends, as I did staff. So using my definition, I don't think there's any question, but that Ted Kaufman is his closest friend. And I asked probably 15 people in and around the Biden orbit, and everybody said it's Ted Kaufman. So I called Ted Kaufman. I wasn't able, just to your question, why didn't I put him in the book? I had to close my book in January of 2021, so it was just when Biden was taking office and I was already well over the page limit my publisher wanted. So I figured you know, if I do a paperback, I'd love to do a chapter on Biden and his first friend. And I think it is Ted Kaufman. I spoke to him. I've probably spoken to him for maybe five hours on the phone now over the last few months. He is a delightful man. He was his chief of staff for 22 years when the average length of a chief of staff is three and a half years today. But you know they not only worked together, but they rode the yeah, train together. Right. You know, they became really close friends in addition to working with each other. you know, In 2015, when Biden is facing the death of Beau, he asks Ted Kaufman to take a 120-day special governmental employee designation unpaid and come down to Washington to just be with him as he goes through that horrific experience of burying his son. And Ted was just there, just sitting in an office. Whenever Joe wanted to come over and seek consolation or solace, there was Ted you know, as a friend with the comforting shoulder. And I just think it's an incredibly deep, close friendship that, you know, has got a lot of dimensions to it that I'd love to write about someday.
0: Well, and I'll say, you know, on the other side of that, right, as people remember, you know, after Beau died in May of 2015, there was a sudden question about whether Biden would make a late entry into the Democratic race, got a lot of attention. And he spent that summer in mourning, And also kind of testing the waters and trying to figure out whether he might get in late. Was Hillary weak enough to challenge? And Ted Kaufman was in the center of that discussion, along with Valerie, about the question of, is there enough time? Can you get your shit together? Are you emotionally competent to do this? I mean, These were conversations that were taking place on the level of both the logistics of can we mount a campaign? Can we raise the money? All that stuff. But really much more at the center of, are you going to be emotionally, psychologically, right. spiritually prepared for this so close after the loss of the son who you worshipped, exactly. you know, not, not just a exactly. son, but someone right. who you worshipped right. in the way that he worshipped Bo. There was a very close council for that conversation. Yes. Not very many people involved in it. And Ted was one of those people along with Val. Exactly right. Same with 1988. I mean, when he was trying to decide whether to stay in that race,
1: the yeah. last person whose advice he sought in that war council was Ted's. And when Ted said, yeah. get out, the decision was then made.
0: Yeah, I think it's an interesting thing. Well, you know, Ted Kaufman ends up running the transition for, for Biden, right? Yeah. So he's very involved at this point. Now he's not involved actively. He's not involved officially in the Council of the White House, but I, I don't doubt they speak frequently. They speak all the
1: time. Yeah.
0: As you think about having looked at a lot of presidents and you think about, I mean, in some ways, a book about First Friends is really a book about the emotional, psychological, like stability and health of a president, right? That's really what this is about in some level, at the deeper level. 100% is how do they keep their bearings? How do they not lose their minds? How do they hold up under the pressure and the loneliness and all that stuff? Exactly. How do you think Biden's doing on that front from a distance and from conversations? Yeah. Do you look at Biden and think he seems like he's doing, you know, okay, things are like on track for him? Or does he seem like a little, I mean, this guy has like an incredible experience. He's spent eight years in the White House as vice president. But I wonder what, does he seem adrift to you? or yeah, Does he seem well-grounded? It's a hard question for me to answer. I'm not a
1: psychologist. I haven't really studied it, John. I'd love to opine on this issue and give you my perspective. I just don't know, to be honest with you. I know Ted spent four days at the White House when Jill left to keep him company. I know they speak on the phone all the time. I mean, it's interesting that Ted said to me, I don't feel qualified to give actual substantive judgment on any issue today because they're so complex. And if I'm not sitting in that West Wing or in the executive office building, I don't feel qualified when people, either whether it's the president or the chief of staff or a domestic policy advisor calling for my advice, I don't feel qualified to give that advice. I think what he does, to your point, is he provides that emotional comfort. And I know that first trip that Jill Biden took away from the White House Biden called him up and said, I need you to come on down and just spend three days with me at the White House. And he did. He went to all the meetings except for the intelligence briefing and was just a constant companion to him. You know, he was the guy when when he was left alone. And I think he plays that really important role. Are there others? And does Biden feel that ballast that he needs? I just don't know.
0: It feels to me like Biden has, you know, I don't think anybody would say the presidency is going perfectly. But what doesn't seem to be the case so far is that this is like a White House consumed in kind of drama. I mean, look, some of the conniptions that were true in the Clinton administration, there was just a lot of like that kind of constant drama and churn and certainly in the Trump administration where it was chaos. And that brings us kind of to Trump. That's not chaos is not Joe Biden's problem right now, right? No, I don't think so. I said I wanted to close this loop, and I do, you know, is to come back to Trump, right? So you, you know, you knew Jared and Ivanka, like a lot of us did in some way. You went down to the White House in 2017 and met with Jared and, and heard his, at minimum, heard his complaints about CNN. I did. Talk about why you think in the end, we, we discussed earlier that Trump doesn't have real friends. Talk about what we saw in four years and what you know from your various sources about the ways in which you think it was actually debilitating to Trump as president to not Have a first friend or a real circle of friends who he really trusted and played the role that you sketch out in the book. Yeah. Well, somebody described how
1: Trump likes to relax, and that is to go up to Camp David with friends and family, you know, just a traditional way that presidents would relax, gain a little bit of recreation and respite, et cetera. And what somebody told me was that he would go up to Camp David, he would closet himself in a cabin and spend Most of every day he was up there just calling around to supporters, asking the simple question, How am I doing? And that was his way of interacting with family and friends, with gaining respite, with relaxing. And so I think it speaks a lot about the kind of emotional being he was, which is he didn't need the kind of company of others to recharge, to hear other perspectives from people he felt very close to. He just wanted affirmation and he could get affirmation from virtually anybody so long as he was hearing that he was doing a good job. And I think that that just reflects such a deficiency in one's emotional makeup. That to gain that respite that every president needs, he just needs to be patted on the back, you know, like a little kid and said, you're doing a good job, Johnny. And so how does that play out in his presidency? Well, I think, you know, in those last two months, when a first friend could have walked in there and said, Donald, you've got to leave this office with some modicum of dignity, and you're not. Get off the big lie. Do what you know is right. Leave with grace and dignity. Nobody walked in there and said that to him. You know, I think that those who could have just saw what a shit show it was and stayed away. And those who thought they were his close friends just enabled it to the worst degree, whether it was Rudy or Dan Scavino, his social media guy. you know, The people that he spent the most amount of time with, none of them could play that role of first friend and get him out of the morass that
0: he was in at the end. Well, I think that kind of raises the question. You know, one of the things about a book like yours is that it's sort of comforting in some ways. I think for those of us who've been around presidents for any part of our career, you know, we have a relatively complicated, variegated view of those people, right? I always say that, you know, the ones who are the great ones, the ones who get all the way, you know, whether it's Barack Obama or George W. Bush or Bill Clinton or, you know, you name Ronald Reagan, they're all like some mix of idealistic and selfish and narcissistic and egomaniacal, but also really insecure. They like, are they're needy, but they're also really confident. It's like, they're all kind of these complicated figures yep. who have all of that. They all contain multitudes, right? Yep. So we watch them all and then they get to the white house and they encounter this, there's this continuity that you lay out in the book where it's like the ones who are successful, find a way to have these first friends. And it's, there's a certain kind of like normalcy to all of that. And you don't think like somehow that like, all of those things have been true of all of them to one degree or another. And then Trump comes along and he's such an outlier in so many ways. It kind of tests your belief in like, you've got to kind of find yourself like, how could somebody like that get elected? Yeah. How could someone like that govern? How could someone like that, that human who's just a monster, like no one could break through. This wasn't like, well, at the end, there was no one to speak. There were for four years, there were people who tried to speak truth to power to Trump, tried in various ways, lamely, whatever. But like, you know, you heard all these people like, I was in there trying to like make sure the whole thing didn't go off the rails, but he drove all of them out. He did. And by the end, all he had was sycophants, lackeys, yeah. toadies, stooges, yeah. yes men, and people who didn't give a flying fuck about democracy. Yeah. sounds stupid to say, how can that be? <laughs> but it, it's sort of like, yeah it does make you wonder whether a lot of your assumptions about what it takes yeah. to be president are maybe all just bullshit because that guy... I mean, he did do yeah. it in some way well, for four years. The more curious question is, how could it be again? That's, yes.
1: that's what I find so troubling, that after witnessing the destruction over the last four years, how could a party still contemplate, not just contemplate, but welcome the idea of doing it all over again? That's the part that I find just impossible to understand. What does Jared say? I have no idea. I've not spoken to him. That's not a question I have... I would post to him. My uh, guess is no. though he's you know a little bit more reasonable than his father-in-law, but who knows? He's,
0: he's, he's, yeah, I mean, I heard th- there was some story of like not that long about a Jared Navaka trying to distance themselves from her father. I'm like, good fucking luck with that guy. Yeah, well, they like, certainly did at with, the end, right? No question. Yeah. So it's like, well, we can. There's no doubt we can probably wash the stain out of our clothes if we have the right kind <laughs> yeah. of detergent, it will be fine, no yeah. problem. It's like, guys, you're soaked in blood. That's never coming out. Yeah, never coming yeah, out. That's a tough one. Not if there's any justice in the world. Gary, John, I've often said that you're a great American. And sometimes, <laughs> and sometimes I've even meant it. But today, Never, to but me today, Never told me that. But uh, thank you for saying that. I'm touched by that, John. Yeah, I don't think your ego needs any further inflation. But I will say, on this day, you've been a great guest.
1: Oh, well, thank at you. At
0: High Water. Thank
1: you. I've enjoyed it a lot.
0: As Howard Stern would say, you've said it all. And some of it will probably get you in trouble with certain people, which I'm hopeful. You know, I'm hopeful we kind <laughs> come become kind of a tabloid feeding frenzy. Gary Ginsberg, the author of The Must Read. If you're a fan of the presidency and you're thinking about, what should I read over this quiet holiday period into the new year there's nothing better really i mean there's nothing better the first friends the powerful unsung and unelected people who shaped our presidents and we're looking forward to the next book by gary ginsburg the autobiography of gary ginsburg oh god help me (laughs) my life by gary ginsburg i just did it on this freaking podcast sean who needs to write it now thank you for doing the show my friend thank you Helen High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Gary Ginsburg for being with us today. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Helen High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Helen High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray, our assistant producer; Stephanie Stender, our post producer; and Christian Fidel. Castro Russell, our executive producer, all heroes, gods, and just delightful people in every way.